Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special. Get that doctor special. Very special. Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips. The other voice you heard is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I am very good. Now, mate, I'm recording, well, recording this in advance. I'm still officially on holidays, although it's Sunday, so I am home somewhere, hopefully. Hopefully not too wet. I hope you're That's not my hurt. Hurt. <laughs> Hopefully I had a good time. Hopefully the kids had a good time and uh, I'm not tearing my hair out. Well, I don't have any, so that probably makes it easy. Should we get on with it? Uh, I think so. We've got a full bag of mail, which is just as well because this is our mailbag edition. Let's kick off, mate, with a regular correspondent, Tegan. Tegan is the person who coined the hashtag red panty investor. I'm pleased to say we got a new hashtag. No, not as uh, not as controversial this time, but I'm pretty sure that hashtag is still of that tag is a handle. It's still available on Twitter, mate. Should you choose to take it up or Instagram, maybe? Mm. Any closer? Uh, no. All right. Tegan asks, hey, Scott and Doc, as always, thank you for your weekly dose of wisdom that is the full podcast. I learn a little bit more each week from you guys about investing, not only from the full services I'm a member of, but also from your down-to-earth ramblings. I, I'm not sure if that's a positive or negative. Dosed, here we go, with the strong scent of excited geek pheromones. I don't... I don't imagine that's a good smell. Geek pheromones don't. Geek pheromones sound like pizza and Coke to me. That's I'm assuming that's not good, a good. That's yeah? a good smell, right? Pizza smell. Who doesn't that's like pizza? Nice, I, I thought you love pizza. Geeks aren't known for smelling good, though. That's all I'm thinking. Oh, let's just assume it's good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she, says, she says that you deliver us. You make my drive to work bearable. Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. So thank you and don't ever change. There's no chance of that. Now. There has been a lot of talk of IPOs as Snowflake jumped onto the market. We talked about that last week. But I can't help but wonder, Tegan asks, why do companies list in the first place? This may be self-explanatory for the more seasoned investors, but I have to admit my brow pinches together when I wonder why they actually do it. She says, I imagine there's a lot more reporting and transparency, one would hope, that comes with being a listed company. And it sounds like a lot of effort when the owners and directors could just keep the money for themselves. I'm sure the main reason comes down to money and capital raising, but is it just that? Surely there are more benefits to listing, but what are they? Full on Teagues, hashtag confused baby investor. So I like that. Teagues, I'm glad you're asking the the. Good questions. The Sometimes they might seem like simple questions, but if you're asking them, mate, I'm sure plenty of other people are wondering the same thing and it gives us a good chance to chat about some stuff that otherwise we wouldn't be talking about. So thank you for the question, as always. Doc, that's a fair point. So mm-hmm. many IPOs. Um, some are great. Some are terrible. We mentioned Meyer, of course. Um, Enron was once an IPO, of course, and, and went horribly badly. On the other hand, we're glad that Apple is in the public markets. We're glad that Amazon and Kogan and plenty of other companies are in the public markets because we've had a chance to enjoy that journey. But as Tegan said, well, in hindsight, wouldn't Russell and Kogan be better to run this as a private company and have all the proceeds for himself? Why would a company want to list on the market? Yeah, so the Kogan example is a, is a, is a good one. Let's, let's just use that. Um, so a company like Kogan that needs to grow, needs capital for that, so it needs, needs to make investments. Uh, to make investments, it needs to raise money. One way to do that is to um, go to the capital markets and raise money. Mm. Um, now, the the that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that a business like Kogan, for example, was bootstrapped by the founders. It, it was uh, pretty much profitable, Were you know, um, at, at least cash neutral. I don't, I don't mm. remember exactly what the document said at the time of IPO. It's been a while I read that document, but let's assume that it was it was you know self self sustaining at that point, uh, f- uh, funded by um, the co-founders' money. Mm-hmm. Now, other than taking a salary and taking maybe uh, you know dividends out of the company as or profits as dividends to themselves mm-hmm. uh, because they own the company, there's no other way for them to liquidate. Uh, their you know hard earned in, you know investments have made into the business right mm. so one way to liquidate and to take off some you know at least have some of that winnings mm. and to enjoy some of the winnings that mm. that comes from creating a business growing the business and so on one way to do that is actually via an IPO process um, which is initial um, a public offering you basically are sharing, selling your shares as the founders yeah. uh, or the insiders to 
outsiders and allowing them to then you know uh, enjoy the fruits of the business growing going forward. That doesn't right. mean so. It's it's a way. It's a it's it's a way to create liquidity for the existing people. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other, other important thing to realize is businesses that are small are typically funded by the uh, are, are funded by the founders yeah. and venture capitalists venture capitalists have a different model they have a model of investing in small seeing them grow big so they, they they're making multi-bagger returns in the private market and then exiting right that's their mandate mm. they typically many of these venture firms would not hold or at least for very long, shares in companies that have become listed. That's again a part of the mandate thing, mm, mm. right? Simply, exactly for the reasons that you know, sovereign many sovereign wealth funds, for example, invest in uh, bonds, right? Mm, I mean, mm. we'd say, why would you invest in bonds? Makes no sense. But for them, it probably makes sense because that's part of their mandate, right? They yeah, need right. to maintain cash. So they say again how how the sort of market works. Um, another big reason for companies to list, and this is this is you know, is. Mm. Um, many companies reward uh, their uh, employees mm. via shares or share grants, restricted stock units, options, and things like that. And you know, it's good to have a liquid market mm. where it, these things can be realized. And if you don't have a liquid market, and if you have like you know periodic markets or um, a semi-private market mm-hmm. or IPO round right. or, or or private investment round markets, yeah. it becomes hard to realize those uh, those that share ownership, especially for um, you know down the rank holders, yeah. um, down the rank in the company, and and therefore. Uh, that's another mechanism. So those are sort of the broad reasons to uh, for a company to actually do an IPO. Mate, you've nailed it. I don't think I have anything to add. <laughs> there you go, Tegan. Cool. Heard it from heard it from the boss himself. Um, the, yeah, IPOs, lots of good, lots of drawbacks too, mate. I think it's fair to say. I think there's plenty of founders who maybe it's a bit of a poison chalice, right? They kind of some of them, I'm sure, wish they hadn't done it. Michael Dell of Dell Computer famously bought his company back. Uh, <laughs> Richard Branson, I think, did the same at some point. Um, there, there, there is something. Uh, public markets are a very specific and, and particular beast. I'm, and and frankly, I've heard plenty of founders who have said they were told not to go public and they loved it, uh, did it anyway, and were more than happy. Others who have said, "Gee, if we had a time, we wouldn't have gone public." I mean, there's a whole lot of extra. Being a public company has a whole lot of extra obligations and pressures that you simply don't have as a private company. By the same token, that's right. Yeah, it's so it's about liquidity at different forms. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's I think that's the short answer. Very good. Next question came from Dan Doc. He says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast and the live events you've done on Facebook. Thanks, Dan, for tuning into those. Might do another one when I go back from holidays, I think. On the 11th, you spoke about the banks trying to move into the buy now, pay later sector by providing the same services to their customers. He says, but would it not be better and easier for them to simply fight for the chance to be the main lender to companies such as Afterpay? Lending millions of dollars to one company at a fixed interest rate seems like a lot less effort than a few hundred dollars to their own customers for zero return. And as always, full on. What do you reckon, Doc? Is that is that the best way for the banks to play this, to become a lender to the likes of Afterpay or OpenPay or Sezzle or Klarna or Splitted or OpenPay? Or I'm running out of ideas now, but there's plenty more. Yeah, that doesn't. I mean, that doesn't sound like a, like a bad idea. I mean, you know, you instead of trying to do many micro credits, you're mm. actually doing one big, large credit. Yep. Uh, you know, yeah, and then that's actually that. You know, NAB, I believe, is one of those people which have have, have funded Afterpay, for example, as an example. So yeah, right. uh, have provided or when I say have funded and have provided credit, mm-hmm. uh, a revolving credit or whatever it is called. Mm. Um, yeah, I think. That seems reasonable. It's interesting. I, I mean, the flip side of that course is, is many little exposures means you're not exposed to one massive failure, right? Like at some point, you know, it, it's it, you may you probably make more money lending to one particular entity, but if that entity doesn't manage to survive or, or pay you back, then you, you can't collect from half. Or maybe you can. Maybe you're a secured creditor. Maybe you can get some money back from its from its um, uh, from Afterpay's own own borrowers, but. You know, there is some value in being having more than one customer, rather one big exposure for better or worse. Um, I think like the idea, Dan. I think I think Dan is that there's probably only going to be so many lenders, as you say, Doc. NAB is a lender, but then the other banks aren't, and so they they need to be part of it at some point. So you have one exposure. You've probably only got one or two or three banks in a syndicate of lenders, and so probably it's also hard on the other on the other hand to do that. The other thing, Afterpay, at some point, I guess, also has access to wholesale markets at some point, right? Like yeah. when it gets big enough and meaningful enough. 
Um, maybe it still lends from borrows from Australian banks, I should say, but maybe it goes overseas or maybe it taps the wholesale markets directly with bond issuances or something else. Um, so if you can win that one, it's possible. I guess some level though, it's unlikely everyone wins that one. You probably, it's not exactly a zero sum game, but there's probably a couple of winners and, and lots of losers or at least lots of non-participants. Fair to say? Mm-hmm. All right, man, let's move on to a question from George. Hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. It's the best investment podcast I've found. Thanks, George. I assume he's only found one. Fair? Yeah, I think this, this yeah, is the only one. one. Uh, he says, <laughs> I've just got a question about a recent statement. Oh, dear. A recent statement you made on the podcast. I wonder if that was me or you. Probably me. You are clearly pro-increasing the super guarantee rate paid by employers. Okay, yes, that was me. Is that you, Doc? You in favour of increasing the superannuation guarantee? I have a, I'll, I'll say I have a uh, nuanced view oh, on this. Well, I'll, okay. let you, I'll let you go first. Because <laughs> I, I noticed this question. He clearly put me in brackets. It's not, he's, he's got nothing to say to me. So thank you, George, for that. All right. So George says, is some of that a personal bias, given you are a share investor? And a significant portion of this added super will be invested into shares, thus increasing the share prices. Furthermore, won't this put negative pressure on wage growth? given employers will be having to fund increased super payments and therefore less likely to provide wage increases in the private sector. Wouldn't this have a significantly negative economic flow-on effect? Thanks for all the work. Cheers, George. I should want me to go first, do you? Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I'm curious to what you would say. All right, here and, we go. And, and maybe go. I can have like the final say here. Is, oh, I see. What's the, he's already asking for the final say. Here we go. This could be ugly. All right, I'll let you have the final say. There you go. Have a nice bloke. All right, George, let's let's go through it. Am I clearly pro-increase the superannuation guarantee? Yes, absolutely. I think from an economic perspective, from a social perspective, from a long-term budget perspective, I think it's the most responsible thing for the government to do, given that a... The current rate of savings is probably not going to be enough to fund most people's retirements, certainly those on lower incomes. Uh, and B, if that doesn't happen, then guess who's going to carry the can? It's going to be the taxpayer. Um, a, that's going to be you, me, George, and, and Doc and everyone else. Um, but also, even if it's other taxpayers, it seems the most responsible thing in my view for a government to do is to ensure that future obligations are funded. And to my mind, you can either say to future taxpayers, hey, you pick up the tab. Um, or you can say, hey, let's make sure there's a system that makes sure there's no tab to be picked up. Um, I think that's the, the, the preference. I've actually, by the way, written an article about a better way to fund retirement, which is a government contribu- a tiny government contribution at birth and then sat there for 50 or 60 or 70 years, which compounds at a very decent rate and will more than cover that. So I think there's other ways to skin the cat. But short of a, a shake-up of the system, George, I think it's the fairest and the most responsible thing for the government and for us as employees, as workers to do, is to make sure we have enough funds for our own retirement um, and not, not rely on the public purse, which is going to be stretched anyway um, through a whole lot of stuff, including COVID, but the, the changes to things like healthcare costs and welfare costs, the population growth, all that kind of stuff, I think it's the most responsible thing to do. So that's why. Is it a personal bias given you are a share investor and a significant portion of this added super we invested into shares? No, absolutely not. Um, do I stand to gain if... A disproportionate amount is invested in Australia, yes. Um, I've actually done the reverse though, mate. If, if I was worried about personal bias, I've absolutely said in the past, more super should be invested outside Australia. I've I've campaigned for more international investing by our super funds. Um, would that hurt Australian share prices? I guess, you know, versus the counterfactual, sure. If, if 10 bucks were going to be invested in Australian shares and instead it's eight or seven or six and the rest goes overseas, I guess in a counterfactual basis, I would be more wealthy if... Super funds are only invested in Australia, and they probably will, by the way, so maybe you're right, but I would take the reverse of that. I actually think more Australian investors, including super funds, should be investing overseas. I'd, I'd be more than happy to see much, much, much more money go overseas from a public policy perspective. Um, I think super funds would be a better place. I think their members would be better placed. It's more diversified. It's more appropriate, more responsible. So um, do I send again? Maybe if they don't do that. So yes, I guess you could aim, you could claim that. Um, I don't think that's influencing my views, but I can't rule out. And You can make that decision for yourself. Won't this put negative pressure on wage growth? Yes, it absolutely will. He says, given employers will be having to fund increased super payments and therefore less likely to provide wage increases. Yes, absolutely true. Whatever money is in in a perfectly competitive market, if wages are genuinely the representation of supply and demand meeting, then if I'm worth 100 bucks to my employer, if they're going to pay me 100 bucks regardless, if they're forced to put half a percent of that into super, then am I going to get 99 and a half rather than 100? Yes, absolutely. If if the supply and demand says the total remuneration for my role, given my skills and experiences, is 100 bucks, um, and frankly, it's probably not worth much more than that, but don't tell the boss, 
then uh, yeah, that's what that's what should happen. And so yes, absolutely, my pay pack will be divided up into a whole lot of stuff. By the way, that also includes payroll tax. It includes any other on costs, office space, a whole lot of other stuff. The cost of employing me is not just my salary and or super. It's every cost of employing me. Plus, by the way, the opportunity cost of, of spending that money on something else. So, yep, absolutely will, will negatively impact wage growth. Um, I think that's a price worth paying for the reason I talked about before. If wage growth is 25 rather than 3% or 15 rather than 2% because money's going to super, then I'm okay with that, completely okay with that. Um, wouldn't this have a ne- significant negative economic flow-on effect? No. Um, it'll have a negative impact. Yes, absolutely, uh, by some amount. But we have to – there's trade-offs the whole way through, right? I think – if the price of a weaker economy later is a stronger economy now, I don't want to pay that price. Um, I don't want to pay the price. I, I don't want. I don't want a stronger economy now if it means that the future is weaker. And from a policy perspective, I was the dictator of Australia, but I'm a dictator, of course. But I was the dictator of Australia for for a year or a day or a week. Um, I would absolutely make that decision. I would say, you know what, I'm happy to have a slightly weaker economic growth profile in 2020 for a better funded retirement system from 2040 through to 20, well, forever effectively, assuming that superannuation doesn't change. But, you know, if that's the price I have to pay, we do that all the time. We saving, investing by definition has a negative impact. Um, If we all are worried about the economic impact, we should stop investing tomorrow and spend all of our savings because that would help the economy. So individually, if you're an investor, you are absolutely making exactly the trade-off that we're talking about that superannuation makes, which is, you know, impacting current economic activity for greater security economic activity in future. So yes, it does have a negative impact now. I think it's worth paying. And anytime we make any decision to defer consumption, we are having that impact, making that inherent decision. And I think if we're investors and we're saying individually, we're happy to put money away, I think it would be somewhat disingenuous of us to say that the government shouldn't do it or that employers shouldn't have to do it um, for, for super. Effectively, super is just another savings or investment vehicle. Um, and unless we're going to stop investing, I think it would be it would be disingenuous of us to say that super shouldn't, but the rest of us should keep doing it. Um, it's hard to justify that from a policy perspective, I think. There you go, Doc. That's a line-by-line line answer to George. You wanted the final say? Go for it. Well, not, not a final say. I'm hoping I'm, I, the floor is yours, mate. The floor is yours. <laughs> well, well, so I, I actually think um, super should increase. Okay. However... I would actually not do it the way it's proposed. Ooh, I'm me. completely against this approach of. So, well, I've changed. The, the, I've recently changed my mind. So, what I would actually propose that super should go up, right? But I would take that money from the existing pay. In other words, the take home pay of the employee actually goes down. Right. Okay. As a forced saving. You're obviously not going to run for politics anytime soon. No, but I, <laughs> but this is this know, is actually yeah, yeah. this is this is a scheme that's very common in um, many other parts right. of uh, of the Commonwealth. It's, I think it's done in Canada. Mm-hmm. Where you basically, well, you know, I'd basically say that you know take five percent out of the paycheck, right? As call it tax, but yep, it's actually yep. superannuation tax. Fascinating. And and that five percent that I'll take out, I'll actually on that you pay zero tax. Yep. Okay. Right. But that then becomes essentially added to your super. So, you so, so the employer now has to no longer pay anything extra above yeah, yeah. what it currently pays. Yeah, yeah right, right. Therefore, there should be no wage pressure, mm-hmm. <laughs> supposedly, mm-hmm. at least. Yep. And um, people are just basically being forced to save more. Fascinating. I like that idea. I don't. I have no issue with that idea at all, other than, as I said, we'd never get through Parliament. And neither you know I ever get elected to on that platform. Oh, but maybe, uh, Josh is welcome to take this idea. Ah, there you if go. If he takes it, he can call it. Uh, He'd my, be listening. He can just call it my idea. I like it. Yeah, and and you know it could be called that tax. I That's like actually it. It's great. I think it, this is the best way to do it. You know, everybody wins at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you like know, it. an economy, no flaw in effect. Well, there's some flaw in effect here because you know you're taking away. It'll just economic activity for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. but you, but yeah. You, if you take out a couple of percentage, you know, yeah. two, two, three percentage out from people, but the compound value of that is going to be so much. Yeah. Um, but you don't lose, you know, you don't feel this, n- the pressure that uh, small businesses feel like, oh, now do I have to pay mm-hmm. more? How am I going to grow my business? And there's no no effect on the growth of businesses because yeah, yeah, you yeah. the businesses are not really landing up paying anything yeah, right, extra, right, right. right? You're just forcing people to, mm-hmm. and you always mm-hmm. encourage people to save. I like that. There, I mean, there are some, there are some inf- impacts either way, right? So I guess if you're paying more, you've got less in the bottom line. If you're getting less business because employees get less money, there's still some sort of flow on effects. I guess there's probably a net net somewhere there. It'd be fascinating to see how that actually changed. I guess the businesses that currently employ more people as a proportion would be worse off in a superannuation guarantee increase, but they'd probably be slightly better off, all things being equal, in a in a scenario like yours where it's kind of effectively taxed out of the out of the take home pay um, because the proportional amount being spent 
you know, the, the businesses with fewer employees would, would have the same kind of economic impact, right? All things being equal. That's so right. There'd be, there'd be a flow. I, I actually don't mind that idea a lot, mate. Would you yeah. do five percent first? Like, I reckon you could. I, I'm, I'm actually with that. Like, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to sign up to your your plan. I'm I, I say would, the remainder. Say it doesn't even have to be five yeah, percent. Yeah, like yeah. you know, it could be you start off yeah. with just taking one percent, one percent, and one percent not a lot. Yeah. But you don't like tax that, that right? Like because that. we are already taxing the super yeah, yeah. at what fifteen percent yes, or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. So we don't tax this. Yeah. And we just let it contribute. I like that a lot, man. Right, sign me up. I think it's a good idea. Let's do that. All right. There you go. We I, see. I thought you were going to. We made a policy here. Good man. So can, now we don't need a treasurer. I can be treasurer too. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that because I probably should the last word. And there it is, <laughs> Doctor Treasurer. There you go. I just say it anyway. Question from Dale. Now Dale, Dale said this to me, and I got to say, my, I, I like the idea of being the benign dictator. Dale's actually giving me a a title because <laughs> he starts off El Presidente, <laughs> loving the subscriptions and would recommend more people get on them. Now, Doc Dale, I, I think you're my my new favorite listener. El Presidente. I, I think, Doc, it. from now, can you tell the team that from now on, I, I, I require them to call me El Presidente? I, I'll, 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 I'll inform them. Would you do that for me? Yes, please. please. Good. Uh, definitely. Good, good. Um, he said, I've got a question for the podcast. My wife has said she wants to invest in the Airbnb IPO. In brackets, happy wife, happy life. So we are going ahead with it when it's offered. Good man. Very good choice. My question is, what is the timeline for an IPO? If Airbnb has just put it forward recently, how long until we can invest in it? I know your feelings on IPOs, <laughs> he says, but this will only be a small amount invested as a learning experience for my wife. Say so good day to Doc, full on. I like the way he's like, don't even tell me it's a bad idea. My wife wants to do it, I'm doing it, dude. <laughs> no, just don't, don't tell me it's not. Just, just tell me how to do it, okay? Help me out here. My wife wants me to do this. I want to do it. Make my life easier. Just tell me how to invest in the IPO. And I I can respect that. I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of time for that approach. So let's... Assume that the that's going ahead, and let's assume the IPO is happening. What do you know about the Airbnb IPO currently, mate? Um, I, I, what I know is what he has already told us, uh, right. um, which is uh, that they have filed an intent to. IPO. I think that's my understanding as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I, and but that's an intent. Then there's going to be a document. There's going to be banks involved, and um, yeah, when that happens, we will know when it happens I guess yeah the other thing I would say too is it's going to be very very hard to invest in the IPO so um, I'm not saying don't do it uh, Dale I get it your wife's going to once you do it you're going to have to do it but you're probably not going to get shares before the listing right Doc I think that's the other thing so yeah. when you say investing in the IPO you're probably going to be able to buy the shares after they list you're probably not going to be able to buy the shares at the IPO itself so day one you can probably put your order in and buy some shares if you want yes So, mate, I reckon, yeah, I reckon probably <laughs> post-IPO, you want to have a US trading account ready. You want to have it funded if that's what you want to do with it. And then you want to buy on day one if you choose to. Now, I, I, I have to say this at least, Dale. Um, I know your wife wants to. That's completely okay. You probably just want to decide for yourselves what price you want to pay. Or if you want to pay just any price, feel free to do that, I guess, if you want. Um, but you'll have to probably buy them on market. You probably need to set a limit order. Um before hours on you need to be up during the US market hours to make that trade so they're the only things to think about so get your account ready um, I can't imagine a scenario where we're going to be able to invest pre-IPO so you're going to be like everybody else trying to buy on day one is that fair to say Doc I don't think there's any other I think so you know what I'm going to say Tell is me. that if you have one of those you know brokers just yeah. buy 100 bucks of the share or <laughs> something you know at whatever price then you're satisfied exactly. I, think that's, I think that's probably <laughs> then you have satisfied the wife's happy, mate. And then, then everybody's happy, and then you can watch the business. And Mrs. Dale, uh, good day to you. Thank you for listening. If you are listening, um, I think it's a great idea and spectacular. And, and Dale is a smart, smart, smart man because he absolutely knows that happy wife, happy life is the only thing that matters. Is that right, Doc? That's absolutely right. <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Got a question from Darren, mate. Um, there's a hey Scott and Doc, love the pod. Thank you, mate. I had a quick question, if I may, you can. I'm an EO member. That's Extreme Opportunities. I'll tell you about that in a second. I've noticed that one of the recommendations has made an announcement about escrowed shares. This seems to have a negative impact on the share price. I was wondering if you could discuss what this means for the average punter, particularly for the type of growth stocks recommended in EO. I know you've both discussed capital raising and dilution risks recently. From my quick Google, sorry, Doc, I think that's a Bing reference. It seems that the release of escrow shares can be bad news for small stocks with low liquidity. Uh, 
Keep up the great work, fellas. The pod sure helps with the one hour I'm allowed outside here in Victoria. Darren. Uh, Darren, you're welcome, mate. Uh, do do your best with that hour, mate. Hopefully the case numbers are dropping. We're desperately hopeful that you'll have some sort of increased freedom of movement in the meantime before helping that hour pass quickly or maybe... Maybe he's happy because it passes slowly because we're so boring it makes the hour seem longer. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's saying. But in any case, if you're enjoying being outside and we're helping with that, mate, then uh, good luck. And, mate, stay safe down there. Stay stay strong. It won't be long. You'll be out with the rest of us. So, um, yeah, keep, keep your chin up. Doc, es- so let's – firstly, what is escrow? Okay, so escrow is what it means basically is something has been stored away right. <laughs> uh, and you can't touch it until – and there's probably some time on it at which you can touch it, right? So – uh, escrowed shares typically typically is associated with insiders mm-hmm. or uh, when a company uh, lists on the ASX, for yep. example, and this is, this is specific to EOS. So when many new companies, when they list, they would have a bunch of insiders who would commit to holding on those shares that they have for some amount of time. And that's what they mean. So when the shares are escrowed, it's a commitment the company's made or the, the insiders have made not to sell those shares. Those shares are placed in escrow for an ex- for a period of time. Right. So we've said we won't sell those shares until X. Now, start with this, mate. Why would an insider want to voluntarily lock up their shares? Well, sometimes it's actually a requirement for less listing. This is in in many cases the ASX might actually be requiring this. Uh, this restriction. Uh, sometimes it's just to give confidence that no, we are not dumping the shares, but yeah. you know. Um, yeah, there's a bit of an investor kind of messaging there, right? It's like, yeah. we're here with you. Yeah. We're going to keep the shares for a while. So I feel, feel comfortable to buy them because if they crash, we're going to get hurt too. We can't yeah. get out yet. Yeah. So it's it's a combination of those those sort of, those sort of things. Mm. Um, uh, the... Yeah. So, and the list, and depending upon the type of company and their sort of you know cash flow situation, the the, the requirement could be anywhere between requirement or mm. quasi requirement. Let's call it uh, anywhere between twelve months to twenty four months uh, could be the lockup. And the byproduct of this really is that what happens is there's only some number of shares from mm. existing people that are being sold. There's some number of new shares being issued, and it tends to be that these companies are mm. relatively liquid because the total number of shares available that are not escrowed are smaller relative mm. to the total number of shares on issue. Right. Right. Now, when those shares come out of escrow, what typically happens is you have a change in, and and, and then I guess uh, as I'm, maybe I'm going too fast. If the total number of shares available are not that many and there's demand for the shares, it tends to actually push share price up, right? Again, okay. right? Demand for the for shares, right. less number of sellers available because the total number of sellers is e- basically equal to the liquidity mm. uh, in, in the shares. Right. Okay. Right. And now, when when escrow period expires, mm-hmm. you'd have more shares available for trading, which could, in theory, yep. you know, result in if there's you know now not enough demand relative to that, then it could have some weakness in share prices as is being implied here. Yep. So all of these things again, relatively short term things. Um, yeah. that should, you know, up or down, it should, you know, smooth out based on the value of the business over the long term. It really should not matter. Um, in, I, I'm not sure exactly which company because he didn't, uh, didn't mention the company yeah. and that's fine. Uh, but, you know, again, mm. we look at this in, in different ways. So if, if a thesis is, um, if a thesis relies on insiders having significant amount of shareholding, mm. uh, then you know significant really means if you if you own five percent of a business and you know the business is a two hundred million dollar business and you own five percent, that's still significant, right? I mean, five percent is a significant chunk, and that's a significant mm. portion mm. of wealth for the the founders. And if, if each founders or co-founders owns five percent, that's quite a bit of the business. Mm. So you you again have to see. How much they continue holding? Um, I absolutely fault, don't fault um, uh, founders and co-founders and and management team for mm. selling down, because I mean we wouldn't tell anyone to have all their wealth in one company, and I can't tell management team that you should have all your wealth in one company. It's right. just irresponsible, and frankly, they might want to buy a yacht or mm. a fancy car or a brand new house or whatever, or just pay tax, mm-hmm. right? Those are all legitimate reasons for having wanting to liquidate. So it's not really, 
it's not it's it's an event it's a lot more is made out of it than it really is mm. because ultimately what you're investing is is the company and yes the company is part of the owners you if the owners are all dumping their shares and leaving then there's some some other big problems maybe happening that you should be aware yeah, of exactly but if that's the case it's it's yeah. you know you should totally expect people to sell some shares yeah i think, I think that's right i think that's I, I the main point as you say doc is it actually shouldn't matter i mean if 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 the thesis is solid whether or not some it's Rosalind Kogan we talked about Kogan a lot last couple of weeks and I don't want to keep harping on it for the sake of it um, I own shares again for the record um, sold a whole lot of shares in a whole lot of different times and the market freaked out each time shares dropped in some cases 20-30% I think in a couple of a couple of times over not in a day but over, over you know the following couple of weeks because the insiders were selling and therefore that must have meant terrible things for the stock and, and of course shares kept rising and Kogan sold and kept rising Kogan sold and not say it always happened that way either by the way but it's just I think there's too much made of the potential and, and the other thing about shares coming out of escrow doesn't mean they're going to be sold it just means they're available to sell right so freak out about that the possibility they might be sold and by the way you've got 12 months to know what's coming so you know, the fact that anyone worries about it it just it does boggle the mind I've got to say if you're a day trader if you're a short term trader I guess maybe you want to have a think about it if you don't like the company or or besides a rushing to sell, that maybe might tell you something. By the way, which is they held on for as little possible as they possibly could. Now they're heading for the hills. That might tell you actually something. If if the company's not the quality business you think it might be, so there is there is some reason to think about who's selling, why they're selling. Is it reasonable? What does it say? I think that's you know. All things being equal, we'd always rather have hold, uh, found a hold rather than sell because you know it just means they're more engaged. Now, I'm not saying that selling is bad necessarily, but just given the choice, holding is better than selling. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean just because it's out of escrow, even just because they're selling, we should think anything different about the business and maybe even it's a buying opportunity, mate. If the shares fall on, on the basis of that and it's a quality business, then hey, like Kogan, buy the shares when the market's freaking out. Yeah, because I think Russell and Kogan sold, sold some shares at $7. I think he sold some yeah. shares at $10 and he sold some shares, I believe, at $15. The shares are $20. I mean, you know, yeah. like, I mean, like, I fundamentally think that we can't be, we shouldn't be thinking that Russell should have 30% yeah. of the shares in the company. Yeah, right. Because, well, I mean, you know, he deserves to do other things. Yeah, totally. Like, and he I, should totally I, be doing I would, other things. I would have, like, you know, no matter how much I, I loved and cared about the business I, cre- I created. Yeah. The, the chance that A, it just simply goes badly is just simply sheer, you know, we, we all diversify our own portfolios to expect that a founder yeah. shouldn't somehow because somehow they're ethically obliged not to. Or if you want a house or Marcus Blackmore is still my favourite. Buy, selling some Blackmore shares to buy a yacht at 30 Absolutely. And why would you brilliant. do that? That's brilliant. And, and you should, and Enjoy if, your life, right? And, yeah, and if Marcus wants to have a board and he can have a board, yeah, yeah. he should have, have a, board, a boat, exactly. Right? I, I mean, that's, and, you just want to get an invitation, and, don't and, you? And, and, well, like, I mean, if, here's the thing. Uh, if it takes me in the world, maybe I'll consider it. But, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing, right? If, if, you know, if all these people don't buy the board, yeah. well, some, well, the board seller... It's right. not to have no one to sell to. So right? really, they're looking after the economy. Yeah, they're looking. After, it's it's absolutely <laughs> fine. You know. Um, you yeah, I, I yeah, I, I'm never a big fan of this. And the same yeah. thing, I don't read too much into people buying as well. Like same. I mean, you know, yeah, people buy, so it's yeah. okay. Yeah, there, there's always the line that investors, a director, self, inside itself, many reasons, but only buy for one. I'm not even sure that's entirely true. I, a, they buy for window dressing reasons, which is, hey, the investors are buying. I guess that means they've got confidence in the company. Yeah. They know that's the impact. So if you're kind of inclined to do it, if you if you have you know, $100 million worth of shares and you want to buy $100,000 worth to show some confidence, yeah. it's really more about your current share price than anything, right? Yeah, I think anything, that's the other thing. Exactly. Plus, I've got to say, and this is not a great comment about all the directors here and in the US and around the world, but I'm still yet to be convinced that most directors are better capital allocators than most investors. In other words, just can investors a directors buying or selling unless they absolutely know something that's genuine insider trading, the chance they actually know the best times to buy and sell, like Marcus, like Ruslan, selling at three bucks, if he knew the share price was going to 20 bucks, of course he was going to sell at three. I, I think that's the other thing, right? Is, you know, don't, same with Marcus Blackmore, I'm sure he would have sold at 200 rather than 30. He could have sold, you know, one seventh of his shares and had the same boat. Um, it, you know, t- to assume that they have some magical insight into capital allocation of future share prices, people imbue them with way more ability and and. Um, insight that perhaps they really do and frankly even should deserve to have. But only if Mr. Blackmore's wanted the boat at exactly that time. There is that too. There's that. There's a timing aspect with the boat, right? I mean, you've got to have the boat at the right time. (laughs) Exactly. I think, I don't have a boat, but I'll take your word for it. All right. Question from Jesse, mate. He says, hey, she says, hey, thanks for the podcast. It's my weekly investing 101 training. Thank you. Now, she says, I'm about to receive some IBM shares via an employee share purchase plan, and I'm trying to work out what to do with them. 
On one hand, I could just sell them within seven days, declare the income, have no capital gains tax, and reinvest the money on the ASX in growth dividend stocks. On the other hand, I could keep them, transfer them to my AU broker, and enjoy the 5% dividend. Of course, that would mean filling in a W8 Ben form every three years. It's one of the US brokerage forms. But that might be the push I need to invest in a, a particular um, VTS, a, a Vanguard Index investment. Um, what do you think? Keep the IBM shares and buy the um, <laughs> Vanguard Index or offload them and stay in the ASX and invest in the S&P 500 via an Australian ETF. Thank you so much, Jesse. Doc. You know, so this is a very specific question it about really is. We can't what, what you a do. specific stock yeah. available from a specific employer share plan. You know, love that people get those things. <laughs> I, I really, you see, I have a couple of issues with this one. Uh, it's very specific, not not issues, but I, I think it's a great mm, question. Mm, mm. But I don't know much about IBM yeah. uh, to actually have any meaningful things. I can't really... Do IBM to be a market beta? Do you have a view on that? Because the, the alternative from, for Jesse is, is, a, is a broad market index ETF. So do you, have an, do you know enough to have yeah, a view so on that? Yeah, so like here's my, my thing is that I knew a little bit about the IBM of old. Right. Uh, IBM has gone through a, a bunch of transformation. It's got a new CEO. Right. Uh, they're doing a bunch of things in the cloud. They've acquired a few things. I just haven't looked at it enough to actually have a view. Um I've just heard things from different people that saying you know, IBM is doing great things and they're doing awesome things now. Um, so, but I don't know the price. I don't mm. know the earnings. I don't know what's going on. Mm. To have a view on IBM, and therefore I can't really contrast <laughs> IBM yeah, right, okay. with yeah, yeah, the yeah. other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, right. And and yep, yep. and assuming this is an employee share plan, uh, you know, mm. uh, she probably has better view. Of what's going on, and if she can utilize some of that insight, maybe mm. to site. It's hard, isn't it? I, you know, what's hard about employee share purchase plans is you're you should know the most about the company being on the inside. But I have to say, my experience with a couple of different companies I've worked for, you can end up being not the most objective mm. person. If you love the company you're working for, you can be kind of over optimistic about the future. If you see the problems the company's got, maybe what you would do differently, you can become really pessimistic or at least concerned about you know the future. And neither of those can be right. In fact, um, I've had shares in at least three companies I've worked for that I can think of. Four, actually. There you go. Um, and in different circumstances, I've got to say I've 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 made those mistakes. You know, I've been too close to it. I've I've overweighted the CEO's abilities in both directions. Um, either either you know think they were brilliant or think they were terrible. Um, I've I've miss appreciated in, because I looked at my small part of the, the wheel rather than the whole business um, the, the future that it might be I've got to say I was surprised I'm no tax expert mate we've certainly made that clear in past podcasts but um, I was surprised that that apparently Jesse's saying that she can sell her shares within seven days declare as income with no capital gains tax no I'm, I think the re, uh, the way I read that is yeah. that there is because I think she's because the moment the shares are granted to you yeah You've already paid the employee share plan means that you've paid tax on it as an income from an oh, income plan. She said capital gains tax in her in her write up, right? Yes, so she's yes, not yes. going to pay capital gains tax. Shares have been assigned right now. Yeah, okay. There probably is no or not much right, or already, or maybe the shares have actually price. gone of down. Course, of course, yes. So maybe you can actually book of course, loss. That makes sense. That That's makes what sense. I, I oh, okay, yes, But yes, again, yes. Um, so it's not it's not not taxable. There's just no tax because there's no gain. That's yeah, my interpretation of it. But the the tax is because of the yeah. So yeah, Jesse, look, I, I I agree with Doc a little bit. I don't really have a strong view on IBM's future. Um, I would say that think about so the, a couple of things to think about. Firstly, owning a large stake in the company you own in uh, you work for, sorry, is a nice idea. But if your income and your portfolio is super geared to one company, imagine if you work for Lehman Brothers and you own shares in Lehman Brothers and the dot com, oh sorry, the GFC hit. Um, not only did you lose your job, you lost a decent portion of your investment portfolio. In fact, that happened to a whole heap of Lehman Brothers employees, which is just a horrible, horrible thing. Right? Imagine losing your job and then realizing your, your portfolio or a large chunk of it evaporated because a large amount of your wealth is in there. So I think there's some really good reasons, frankly, to own shares in the company you work for. I certainly own shares in The Motley Fool. Um, but I, I would also say that you want, to be, you want to be too exposed to any one source of income or wealth. And so think about that. Think about how the rest of your portfolio is is combined and where you want to take your portfolio. Um, if you here's what I would think about, frankly, from the outside is if you had the option, if if, if you were given the cash by IBM or any employer, and then 
you said to yourself, well, what, let's say you've got 1000 bucks. Which Where would I invest this 1000 bucks? If the answer is IBM, then buy the shares in IBM. But if the answer is actually, if I got the choice, if I had a thousand bucks, no strings, no ties, and said, we don't want to invest it, and the answer wasn't IBM, but a, but a Vanguard index fund, then that probably tells you exactly what you need to know, which is your preferred idea is the Vanguard index fund. And, and just because you have shares or could have shares in IBM doesn't mean you should keep them. If I was, if I was, you know, if I inherited uh, shares in IBM, just to, to oh, let's not, let's not use that. Let's use Woolies again because I use that regularly. If, if, I, if I inherited from some strange long lost uncle a uh, million dollars worth of Woolies shares, would I keep them just because they were they were bequeathed to me, or would I say, well, where would I rather invest that million dollars? I'd like to think I would would say the latter, right? It's kind of sentimental to keep the shares you're bequeathed. You know, there might be tax considerations, of course, but let's assume not. Um, you, you should really say, well, where would I put if, if I was given cash instead? Where would I put it? I think I would take the same approach to your company shares. Um, of course, as I said, you might want to be engaged with it. You might want to be involved in it. You might want to just feel like you can benefit when the company does well. Those things are all true. And by all means, go with it. But generally speaking, consider it as cash and then go from there. Doc, question from Boise. Boise is a regular correspondent as well. Boise says, G'day, Scott and Doc. I'm just starting to play catch up with your podcast. Very different daily routine since the pandemic. I really liked your recent discussion about super. And I've been looking for a fund that allows a direct investment option so I can manage my own share portfolio within the fund. My current one, his problem is, only permits ASX 200 companies. Do you know of any that give you more flexibility than this? I'm probably not interested in starting my own self-managed super fund. Cheers, Boise. It's a good question, mate. So most, we like the direct investment option within super funds, generally speaking. But most don't, when it's a direct investment, that's not necessarily everything. And the super funds have a problem. You don't pay brokerage because you don't transact with them in the same way you would if you were with a broker. You say, look, I'd like some of my money in Commonwealth Bank shares, please. And they will do that, but they'll do it at the end of a trade now. They'll bundle the orders together. And so they need to make sure there's enough liquidity for those trades to go through without having to employ a whole lot of trading staff whose job it is to make sure they can buy your shares without moving the price around and that kind of stuff. So they normally say, if you're investing directly, only with the most liquid largest companies so that whenever we put the order through, it's not going to play silly buggers with the price. And I guess, speaking personally, if I was in their shoes, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. It's not ideal because sometimes we want to invest outside the 200. But given the structures that currently exist, I can see why they wouldn't do it. Of course, that doesn't solve Boise's problem, Doc. Just because it's reasonable doesn't mean it, doesn't mean it helps him get to where he wants to be. Do you have any suggestions for him if he wants to invest in companies outside the 200? Uh, not not really. I mean, he's ruled out setting up an SMSF, right? I mean, yeah. if you set up an SMSF, I guess you can do your own thing. I, I don't really have a suggestion, unfortunately. Yeah, me either, Boise, unfortunately, mate. I, I, probably a couple of things, mate. I, I think, um, so probably a couple of things you think about. First, no, I don't, there is no real option because of, as I said, the way it does. I, I kind of answered the question in the lead up, which is to say, because of the way they trade them, they just simply can't, right? If you had a small company trades a few million dollars a day or a couple hundred thousand dollars a day, and they had, you know, X number of members wanted to buy it all of a sudden, you just, you couldn't control the supply and demand. It's just too hard. And, and I don't blame them for that because it pushes share prices up if you otherwise want to do something differently. Um, a couple of things. You can look at some ETFs that are mid and small cap ETFs. So I know you want to buy individual companies and I get that. So that's fair enough. But if you wanted to supplement the ASX 200, you could, for example, put some of that money into some of those mid and small cap ETFs. Uh, Vanek have one. BlackRock, I think, have one. Um, there's a few around. iShares might have one, I imagine. Mid and small cap ETF. So again, it's not going to solve your direct investment problem, but if you wanted to have some more exposure outside the 200, that's one way to get it. The other is to think about your portfolio writ large by kind of mentally combining your personal portfolio and your super. So if you're saving money outside super as well as money inside super, you can think of the whole thing as one big lump, right? So you say, okay, well, my, my mid and large cap investing is happening inside super, and I use my personal account to invest in some small caps in my brokerage account, and net net, I'll end up with the same portfolio I'd have otherwise, just divided up by market cap just to allow for that flexibility. So there's a couple of ways to do it. I, mean, I don't know of any any that allow more than that, just because I said because of the structure. SMSFs are the next best solution, but if you don't want to do it, don't do it. I would absolutely say don't do it if you if you're not inclined to. I wouldn't push you into it because you'll probably not enjoy it, and you'll probably not do it as well as you might like, and it just becomes a hassle. So. I'm not, you know, that would be the way to do it is to start an SMSF, but I wouldn't suggest you do it for its own sake. It just doesn't make any sense um, to to push it off in something you don't really want to do just for the sake of, of delivering something like this. So uh, that's the best I can come up with, Doc. Is that? I think fair? that's fair. So yeah, an ETF inside Super or lose. Think about your personal your personal account as maybe the mid and small cap portions of what you're doing. Last question, mate. 
for this particular podcast comes from Jane. Jane again is a, a regular, regularly, um, sorry, reasonably regular correspondent of ours. Asked some great questions, and I like this one too. This is a bit of a macro question, Doc. So uh, get, get your macro hat on. Jane says, "Hey Scott and Doc, thanks as always for a great show and the Share Advisor service. I have a macro question. If you can squeeze it in, we did Jane just at the end." Last week, now this is a couple of weeks ago now because we were pre-recording this one. Last week you were talking about the Federal Reserve's target rate of unemployment being around three and a half to four percent over the next few years, and in Australia I believe this number is around five percent. She says, "But why is the target not zero? Seems like a reasonable question." Jane asks, "Is this unachievable or undesirable?" Many thanks, Jane. Doc, you want to have a first stab? Ah, that's that's a great question. Good question. Isn't it? That's a great question. Yeah, you, you know, like I mean, so basically, unemployment is measured as number of people looking for a job, right? And uh, you you think of that as a percentage. Correct. And in in this particular case, the Federal Reserve is saying, in in their view, mm-hmm. if you have between three and four percent of the people looking for a job mm-hmm. that still don't have a job and that is effectively full employment, right? right? So it's a definition of full employment. One could say, why is it not 2%? Mm-hmm. It could. Um, and, you know, why is full employment not 5%, just yeah. the, you know, which, which, which is governor right, literally, uh, low, yeah. <laughs> low is using? Uh, I think yeah, the, the Australian yeah. number is, you know, we want it under 6%. Yep. Um, and, and I think some of that is probably a function of structure mm. uh, of the economy. Some of that is a function of, again, different goals. Mm. Some of that is probably a function of many other things. But yeah, mm-hmm. effectively, that's that's the 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 3% is effectively the 0%. Um, yeah. and, and, and then, I mean, frankly, you can't get to 0%, really. Mm. I mean, pragmatically, it is almost impossible to get to 0%. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that's what I think. Yeah, it's a good point. Look, I think... Um, uh, yeah, so the other, the other problem with getting this here, so the, the, the economists, the boffins have this thing called, you will have heard it called the NIRU. And it's the it's, a, it's an acronym because they like those things. The Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. I almost forgot that rate then. Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. What that basically means is the economists believe under a certain unemployment rate, it'll simply push wages up too fast. Because if you think about it, you want to have a balance between the number of kind of people looking for work and the number of jobs that are available. If you have too many jobs, not enough people, what happens? Well, all of a sudden wages go through the roof, right? Because, well, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's jobs for three investment advisors and Doc and I are the two people with the jobs. And so there's an extra job over there. The guy who wants us to go and work for him, he's going to say, well, I'll give you more. And we say, no, we like our current job. So he, we, one of us jumps over there and then our boss offers us more to come back. And then, you know, if the jobs are needed and, and there's an ROI for those jobs, wage inflation just takes off. Now, Great for us as employees, and we'll talk and I will both take a pay rise, boss, if you're listening. But uh, if you think about the way that kind of plays through, eventually wage, you know, wage inflation takes off to the point where it creates inflation in the economy because our wages go up, so the Motley Fool puts prices up, and so everyone else wants a pay rise to pay for it, and it creates, you know, potentially really high and spiraling inflation. And so, if you have too little unemployment, that's a problem. Now, if you have too much unemployment, of course, the wages stay down and maybe even fall lower. Lots of people are out of work, and it creates problems in the employment in the economy. So, the the job of the economists, central bankers, the the government policymakers, hopefully, if they're doing their jobs properly, and I don't mean that party politically, I mean both parties, pox on both their houses, um, is to try and have as little unemployment as possible, but no less. <laughs> um, and so that that's where it becomes an issue, right? The fewer, the little, if the unemployment gets too low, you have what they call a tight labour market, and inflation takes off. We want to be careful to avoid that. At the same time, you want to have as many people employed as possible, uh, and and the non-accelerating inflation bit is exactly that. Just how how low can inf- unemployment be before inflation takes off? And that's why zero would be absolutely desirable, right? If we could do it, you know, in a healthy, successful way, that would make a whole lot of sense. The other thing, by the way, is the unemployment numbers also include the the transitorial transit transitorily unemployed. Is that a word? Is now um, <laughs> those who are transitioning from one job to another, and so for a short period of time they're unemployed. That's kind of that. You know, there's got to be some level of just simply people moving in and out of work to make that work. There is a whole lot of long-term unemployed structural problems which we need to resolve as, a, as an economy, as a society as well. Um, so, you know, again, no, there's there's a lot of there's trade-offs everywhere, right? And that's maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the answer. The, the key answer is there are trade-offs everywhere. Um, the bottom line is the economist's job is to try and minimise the costs of those trade-offs while also making sure there's some benefit that comes from them. Here's a question. Shoot. 
So given that there's Do no you inflation, questions in this podcast. Yeah, I'm just, I'm okay. just, I'm just. So given that there's no inflation, yes, nobody can find any inflation. Right, right. Why is the number three percent not zero? Well, that so this can't is the, find yeah, yeah, no, you're yeah. right. And I think well, so that that's a really good question. And what's actually happening in the US and here is the Nairu level, the the actual the rate of unemployment, which which the Nairu is supposed to be you know, non-inflation causing, if that makes sense, has actually been coming down. So, Jane, to your point, for the longest time, I think it was considered to be 5% in Australia. Um, and the ABS and the RBA and Treasury are actually decreasing that rate over time for exactly the reason, Doc, as you mentioned, that in the old days, it was 5%. The And, and we can, I mean, you and I have talked on this podcast before about the reasons why we're simply not having impl- uh, inflation right now. I mean, if, it was, if we're going to have inflation, we should have had it over the last probably three or four years when... You know, prices were you – know, the economy was going well. There was no good reason why economic growth wasn't higher, unemployment wasn't lower, inflation wasn't higher. The, the old rules are kind of broken down a bit. And in, and economists are now talking about or trying to work out why is that? Is it we're importing deflation from overseas? Is it the move to a services economy? Is it the lack of productivity growth? There's a whole lot of potential reasons that could be could be changing the story. But, mate, you're exactly right, and that's exactly what's happening in the economy. That's why Jane's question is so great because – the old rules don't apply. The old levels of Nairu are now much lower um, and we don't really know where they are. And in fact, COVID kind of got in the way of us finding out because we still had no inflation going into COVID. And and yet unemployment was you know about as low in Australia as it has been for, for decades, literally decades. Um, the US was getting down to similar levels as well after their kind of GFC bump. Um, we hadn't found Nairu. And so, you know, the, what's the right level? Look, at zero, it's got to be problematic, right? Uh, well, I guess maybe it doesn't have to be, but at some point you've got more jobs than people and that just causes wage employment because this employer is continually fighting over employees. Great for us, as I said, in the short term, but eventually our costs go up, the, the prices we pay at the shops go up and so there's no free lunch, right? If, if we cause inflation, you know, there are going to be winners and losers or maybe at best we hold even. If inflation, if it wage wage if wages growth is 5% but inflation is 6%, we're, we're worse off than if both are zero. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the boffin answer is honestly, they don't know. <laughs> and, but, but it's something above zero. The question is exactly where and no one knows. Cool. So that's your question? I think so. Phew, got off the hook. Mate, they were done. This mailbag edition, this special mailbag edition, despite your continued cynicism, this special mailbag edition is coming to a close. Special one Spe- is over, finished, done. <laughs> Except before we go, we have to remind our listeners they can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast. They'll be surprised to hear this, Doc, because I don't normally say this every week. Through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or the Podcast One app. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a five-star rating. If you wouldn't mind, particularly on iTunes, please do tell your friends. Please write it somewhere conspicuous but not illegal. Because, you know, they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And, of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness and sign up to some of our special offers, our marketing emails, by going straight to sorry, sorry, to your inbox, sorry, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. <sighs> Spat that out. We'll edit that out later in post, mate. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.